Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, anxiety, emotion regulation, resilience. I am still in my comorbidity series. Anxiety pretty much overlaps with everything. And so it's an important topic. Um, last week was a little bit different just in, ta- in terms of talking uh, ADHD and autism, but I want to now turn to anxiety and autism this week, getting back on the anxiety track. Um, and this is going to be over two parts. Always, you know, I always talk a lot. So I think we can expect that these are big topics. Um, One of the things that I really want to talk about is our autistic children are really so vulnerable to anxiety and it kind of presents a little bit differently. We know anxiety is a common friend in autism, right? Aside from ADHD, ADHD is actually the biggest comorbidity, but aside from ADHD, anxiety is the next biggest sidekick with 50 to 80% of our autistic kiddos who are also feeling anxious. And um, when we know autism is involved in the, in the picture, autism actually predisposes kiddos to anxiety in the first place. And so there's a lot of things for us to think about. Um, And you know, there's a lot of inconsistencies in the research and we're still exploring this, but we do tend to see um, more anxiety, more severe anxiety symptoms in our autistic kiddos than our neurotypical kiddos, even, um, and not just neurotypicals, even when we look at other neurodevelopmental orders and psychiatric disorders, that anxiety tends to be more severe and more significant in our autistic kiddos. So just to make sure we're on the same page with everything, with what autism is, um, we do see core differences in their social emotional reciprocity. So their nonverbal communication, you know, like how we're talking, using our gestures and our facial expressions, right? Um, And understanding other people. So a lot of our communication is based non-verbally, but it's also in being able to develop relationships. Um, We also see other things like stereotypical behaviors, repetitive behaviors, restricted interests, rigidities, those kinds of things. So, you know, that's kind of the core deficits. I mean, listen to my last two weeks if you want to learn more about autism, because I go into a lot of detail. But we've seen anxiety in our autistic population since autism was even first recognized in the 40s, right? So Leo Kanner, he was the one who was first spotting this. He reported that these autistic kiddos, um, some of them displayed really sort of obsessive desires um, for, it's really rigidity, right? Sameness. They needed the sameness. And he guessed that some part of the core autistic profile might partly be driven by high levels of anxiety. And so we already, from when autism was first realized, we were really seeing that anxiety. And so when we do add a known anxiety disorder into the mix, it's really complex and we see sort of these compounding issues. Now, unfortunately, that high level of anxiety, it's only adding to the already exhausted, already overwhelmed autistic brain. And so our anxious autistic kiddos, they experience far more impairments than just autism alone when we add that anxiety. So it's really important that we're addressing this. So we might see worse behavioral problems. We might see worse sleep disturbances, family disruptions when we see that anxiety more than what we would just see with just autism. Um, More social distress, social withdrawal, 
a harder time making and keeping friends, more repetitive behaviors, self-injurious behaviors, um, way more severe symptoms of phobias, obsessions, compulsions. We see lots of tics like motor vocal, um, motor is the action and then vocal tics, verbal tics are anxious, autistic kiddos. You know, a lot of them are really smart, but they're not achieving as well as they probably could in school. They're not participating in school. They're not participating in extracurricular activities. So they're just being isolated even further. And that anxiety really interferes with their independence. We know independence is already tricky for them, but anxiety just becomes so debilitating. And it's in every area of life, like making friends, going out into the community, independent, even things like, you know, as they get older, being able to just run into the shop and grab some groceries when they're living on their own, right? Now, like all kids, I've talked a lot about how so many of our uh, children and teens aren't getting the support that they need for anxiety. And it's the same too with our autistic population. They're just not getting that support they need. And when they don't have that support, they're at way greater risk of developing other things like depression or other psychiatric problems, um, engaging in problematic behaviors like self-injury just not having the social supports that they really should have, not getting the jobs, you know, so underemployment, lower quality of life, and just an overall limited life, right? So clearly understanding this link between the two, autism and anxiety is really important to make sure we're helping them effectively, because we know our neurodivergent kiddos, they're just not getting their needs met in so many different levels, right? And that's really putting them at risk for really developing those challenges later on in life. Uh, so let's look at what's happening in the brain. Okay. So when we, we look at the brain, we know, I'm going to get a little bit complex, but not too complex. So the medial prefrontal cortex, that's really important for helping us regulate our emotions. And there's a connection be between um, other parts of the brain, right? Like the limbic system, the insula-based networks, all of those things. Um, and the prefrontal cortex. And the thinking is that the prefrontal cortex is supposed to calm down that amygdala, calm down and regulate that emotional brain, calm down and regulate then the emotional responses to any incoming signals that are coming from our environment around us. So the insula cortex, that's really important for integrating um, all of the sensory information, interoceptive information, um, and, and then being, of course, regulating our emotions. But these networks, they're not integrated in the autistic brain the same way as they are in the neurotypical brain. So they're not being able to manage that emotional response that's coming up so automatically. Like it's just trigger and their brain's not wired the same. It's different. It's not a deficit. It's just different. And so when they're not getting the support and everything is processing differently, they can easily develop that anxiety, right? And so the thing that I'm going to talk about a little bit is that that lack of integration can make it really hard to get used to stimuli. It can get really hard, you know, those things that trigger in a neurotypical brain, we, we sort of start to become desensitized. But when the brain's not integrated, when the brain's not talking to itself, Sometimes autistic individuals just never get used to that stimuli, even if they're there all the time, just always getting startled or, or whatever's happening for them. And so our autistic kiddos are going to have huge emotional reactions because they think this situation is way more dangerous than it actually is time and time and time again. And if there's working memory deficits, it's so hard to think about what just happened to help me figure out what's happening now, right? So there's just that disconnect. And so 
we see when the amygdala is uncertain, which happens a lot in autism because they are living, you know, they're triangles living in a circle world, there's a lot of uncertainty. So it's really hard for them to be flexible. And when we aren't flexible, flexible and able to respond flexibly to our environment, we respond differently to stimuli. So we're responding differently and that's going to be worsened when we're triggered emotionally, right? Because when we're emotional, the blood is rushing out of our, our prefrontal cortex into our motor cortex, getting us ready to fight or flight. And so now that's going to increase our physiological response and that's going to lead to anxiety. It's just going to fuel the fire. So there's a huge implication what I'm saying with flexibility. And I know I can get a little bit complex sometimes when I'm talking, but I'm going to get to some of those implications when I start to connect the dots after I share. So I'm going to share all the information and then I'm going to help connect some of the dots here. Okay. So just bear with me. Um, we do see brain differences in our anxious autistic kiddos with our non-anxious autistic kiddos too. And then looking at the neurotypical brain too. So the volume of the right amygdala which is, you know, part of the emotional brain, it's smaller. So they have different sort of neurodevelopmental traje trajectories, which is really interesting because when we're looking at the two autistic brains, even the anxious one is different, even from the non-anxious autistic brain. So clearly anxiety actually isn't inherently part of autism. It's really its own beast. So even though Leo Kanner was talking about, I think anxiety is just an underlying thing of autism, we actually see different brains with our anxious autistics and our non-anxious autistics. So it really is a separate comorbid uh, diagnosis. But when they do experience anxiety, they respond very differently from typically developing kids, right? So we can look at their brain differences, but there's huge brain differences when they are experiencing that anxiety, even with anxious NTs neurotypicals. So one thing that we see is um, a huge discrepancy oftentimes between the verbal and nonverbal IQ. And not all the time, this isn't a flat profile, right? We know that every autistic child is more different than they are alike. If you've only met one, you've only met one, right? They're, they present so differently. But if we see differences between our ability to, you, you know, in our uh, reasoning abilities between our verbal, being able to talk with, you know, express our ideas with words, learn using words and our nonverbal IQ, that's being able to take information that we've already learned. I can't study for it, but I'm going to take information that I've learned and apply it to a brand new situation, usually using pictures, right? Or, or manipulative. So we don't have to use our language as much. But when we see these differences in our ability, it really predicts more anxiety, more mood problems in our autistic kiddos. So if we do see a huge difference in their abilities, right, to, to be able to learn and understand and reason and problem solve using words versus more of the visual hands-on activities, we do see a little bit more anxiety too, right? So that's important to consider. Um, but we'll see anxiety regardless of cognitive functioning as well. So it's not just if they have that discrepancy. So I think that that's really important, but that would make sense if we do. Um, so even our kiddos who don't um, have troubles with one or the other, right, or they have verbal skills, um, but they have a hard time using words, right? That can be really problematic. And I see this all the time. Gifted children. IQs of 146 or higher, but they just can't get their words out. 
they can't remember the words. It's like the tip of the tongue, right? It's word retrieval. It's on the tip of the tongue. Um, they will often engage in disruptive acting out behaviors, right? And so we might see some of these externalizing behaviors, even with our smart, super smart verbal kiddos, right? Um, a lot of it is that interoceptive awareness. They have a hard time just understanding their emotions that are coming up, right? And so they don't know how to express themselves effectively. And especially even when they're calm, if they're having a hard time processing and finding their words, can you imagine what happens when that anxiety, when that amygdala is triggered, right? And now they're feeling anxiety. So they will either just shut down or they're going to push away, right? So shut down and hide and have complete isolation from the world, or I'm going to act out. So, you know, there's a few of these pieces that we're seeing within the brain. All this to say, there is, even though we, we talk about anxiety as its own sort of um, comorbid, discrete diagnosis, there is some autistic related anxiety that's different from what we would see anxiety in our neurotypicals. So, I mean, ADHD is really complex. I had already talked about that a few weeks ago, but looking at autism and anxiety can be really, really complex. A lot of the characteristics that we see in our autistic kiddos can make it hard to see the anxiety, especially when a lot of the behaviors mimic or even mask the anxiety. So a lot of OCD types of behaviors, for example, it could be a lot of stimming we see in our autistic population, that's one of the diagnoses, stimmy behaviors, repetitive behaviors over and over and over, right? It could be masking some of the anxiety. So anxiety can make us have a need for routine, a need for sameness. That's a huge feature of autism, needing to have things the same way all the time, right? Um, avoiding things, self-harming behaviors, big emotional outbursts, those are all common in both autism and anxiety, right? And so a lot of people have a hard time knowing or expressing how they're feeling. Um, and so if we've seen anxiety, it can be really hard to figure out what part is anxiety, what part is autism. And again, is it its own separate diagnosis? Yes, it is, right? But what part is anxiety? Um or is it the combination of the two, right? Because we do see the co-occurrence. So I think that that's really important, but um, we do see some things, we know it's completely different, but there's a unique variant of anxiety that's altered by the autism. So we, we do have a lot of autistic um, kiddos who have sort of qualitatively different symptoms that are directly related to their autistic traits, right? Or at least they're more, more, more common in the autistic population. So these are the autism-related anxieties. And so it's not necessarily a true comorbidity because they're specifically related to autism. And this is really important to consider because all of the anxiety assessment tools out there, they're developed for neurotypical people. They're developed for common sorts of anxieties, right? But we know that there's so many autism-related anxieties and they're not being addressed. They're not being picked up in our assessments. They're not being uh, picked up in treatment as well, right? Because it's, there's treatment implications after we have an assessment. I don't have the space to talk about all the differential diagnoses here, um, but do reach out to me if you wanna know more. I've got a training coming up. It's looking at not just differential diagnosis of ADHD and autism. I'm also 
also looking at differential uh, diagnoses of anxiety and autism, right, as well, because they can mask each other. So reach out, let me know if you want to know more about that training, because that's really important. Um, and so we're looking at all, all of these different pieces and, and how we can separate what's what in the training. So check out in the show notes for that, um, because it's really important to know. So for example, it can be hard, um, you know, understanding what's anxiety, what's autism, because we see difficulties in reciprocal interaction, failures to initiate interactions with other people, avoidance of social interactions in both autism and anxiety. And so anxiety could be missed altogether if we're just assuming, oh, they're not initiating because of the autism. They're avoiding because of the autism. They just prefer to be by themselves. But a, a treatment approach is going to be very different if we're focusing on building their skills, initiating with friends versus if they're anxious to initiate in the first place, right? So we really got to think about that. Um, and we're seeing up, up to about half of our autistic po population, they do experience, like I said, this anxiety-related um um, or it's autism related anxiety. Sorry, my words are just a fumbly mumbly all day today. I don't know what's going on. Um, so it's the autism related anxieties. They manifest very differently than neurotypicals, right? And so we got to think about that. Mostly it's based around sensory issues and we know sensory sensitivities and some sensory interests, but sensory sensitivities is a huge piece of the autistic profile. And so a lot of the anxieties are actually based around that. Um, but there are some other things like idiosyncratic specific phobias that aren't common amongst our neurotypical kiddos, such as a fear of crowds, a fear of loud noises. That's usually the biggest one, right? So they're related to the sensory piece, which we don't really see much in our typically developing kiddos. But there's other unusual stimuli that, that could be part of their profile too, right? And everybody's different, but being scared of old people being scared of music. Um, I had a kiddo who the word green was scared to hear it because it was actually painful for them to hear. So that now they're just anticipating that word green, right? Um, or or um, animal pattern couches or men with beards, right? Or fears around their restricted interests. That's a huge one as well. There's a lot of anxiety about not being able to pursue their interests as long as they want to, for example. Conversely, the more common phobias that we do see in neurotypicals, like flying, right? That's a common one that we see. It's not usually as prevalent in our neurodivergent population, right? And so um, those are things that we might actually see some differences in just around the phobias. And then, of course, there's worries about change, unpredictability, right? Needing that sameness. So, so the phobias are usually one of the biggest anxieties that we see. Um, social anxiety is absolutely way higher in the autistic population than our neurotypicals. And one thing that really deviates from our neurotypicals that's really interesting is that their anxiety and social discomfort might not actually be the same as for our neurotypical kids, right? So about in our neurotypical kids, usually how we think of social anxiety is about worries about um, being judged, right? Or embarrassed in front of other people or being negatively evaluated in front of other people. That's sort of the typical thing that we would think of for social anxiety. Now, our autistics, certainly they might, right? Certainly many do. And I've, I've worked and diagnosed with 
um, especially my women who are socially anxious and they're worried, you know, about being judged if people see them turning red, right. And seeing that anxiety come out. Um, so I'm going to talk about that, but a lot of the self-aware youth and adults who realize that maybe their social skills aren't very strong, they, they would maybe experience some of that, right? What we would consider sort of the typical sort of social anxiety, that fear of being judged, fear of rejection, of being humiliated, and certainly being misunderstood. That's huge too, right? Being misunderstood and not fitting in with this round neurotypical world that can lead to a lot of anxiety and masking. So I don't want to minimize the role of the typical social anxiety, because certainly a lot of people do experience that, that fear of rejection. But we also see some qualitatively distinct pieces of anxiety and that social anxiety as well in our autistic population, and especially in children who aren't maybe necessarily aware of their social differences in the first place. So we do see some differences in ages too, depending on where they are developmentally. And that makes sense, right? Because a lot of the social complexities in the teenage years, you know, they're going to have even just in neurotypicals, we see differences in what they're scared about. You know, maybe they're not as scared as ghosts and monsters as they were when they were children. And but now I'm worried about the social piece and existential sort of things. Um, and, and as they get older, they're going to have more self-awareness about their differences, certainly. Right. But we can't actually differentiate what's what. Right. And so we can see that classically neurotypical social phobia or social anxiety. It's not as prevalent in the autistic population. It's more the social confusion piece. Right. Um, not having clearly defined rules in the social situation and in their interactions. So it's more of an ambiguous, um, ambiguous sort of thing that's happening, ambiguous anxiety-like symptoms related to the intersection of anxiety and autism. So it's more about that. I don't know how I'm supposed to be in this interaction. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this interaction. So same thing too, when we're looking at the classical diagnostic criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, it might not really fit great for autistic kiddos. We still, again, need a lot more research. We're still always learning more every day, of course, but there's evidence that while kiddos might be anxious about lots of different things, the anxiety doesn't really change over time. And so it, it often seems more like a trait base rather than a state base of anxiety right? They usually focus on really one rather than a lot of different things or anxiety might look like it's about a lot of different things, but it's really related to things like transitions, changes in the environment, unpredictability, right? So it's not a hard and fast rule. There's never a hard and fast rule. And to be honest, you know, if you take a trans diagnostic approach that I often talk about, right, things start to come together a little easier for individualized intervention. And so we want to take that trans diagnostic approach so we can be very individualized rather than trying to tick some boxes, right? And, and I, I talk a lot about that in, in the differential diagnostic, uh, diagnostic training workshop that I'm going to be doing. 
Um, other differences, though, we we see a lot more compulsive behaviors, for example, right? It, it's not actually motivi- motivated by trying to get rid of distress that we see in neurotypicals. So, for example, you know, if you've got a kiddo with OCD who's scared of the house being broken into, they're going to be checking the doors, checking that the locks are locked, unlocking and locking it just to make sure and checking the windows, making sure it's it's locked, right? So they're doing that for reassurance. They're trying to get rid of the distress and sure that everything's going to be okay. But with our autistic kiddos, it's more sort of stimming behaviors, right? Not to say that they don't also have those OCD sort of tendencies, but I'm just saying the prevalence and we might see more sort of stimmingness a little bit more. Um, We also see a few of the symptoms of autism specifically contribute to anxiety as well. So differences in sensory processing, right? That's absolutely one that we actually need to talk about because we see sensory-based anxiety That's one of the most prevalent in our autistic population, which I was already alluding to a little bit, right? And we're finding that the severity of of that anxiety is actually way higher in our autistic kiddos than other kiddos who aren't autistic, but who have severe sensory processing challenges. And so it's not just about severe processing challenges because not all kids who have processing difficulties and differences have autism. And so we see that anxiety way more severe when they do have autism, right? So we know that it is related to autism. It's not related necessarily to the sensory piece. So, you know, you start to see these patterns. Um, We do see differences in the brain. So even really mildly aversive sensory stimuli, especially sounds, right? Those sounds, um, that specifically activates the amygdala and other parts of the brain way more in the autistic brain than our neurotypical kiddos, which is also related to anxiety and over-responsiveness to sensory input, right? And if we add more than one sensory modality, so sound and touch, for example, right? The brain activity is especially heightened. Their cortisol response to stress is way higher. And the more sensory differences, the higher the stress a kiddo is going to experience. I just want to take a quick back step here. Hopefully it's coherent. I feel like I have a million ideas at once. And in my head, it always makes perfect sense, but hopefully it's making sense to you. Um, But just taking a quick back step here about how autistic kids react to sensory stimuli, because that's important. So some might be over-responsive and that's what I've sort of been talking about. They're over-responsive to sensory stimuli, right? So they're, um, we might see the big emotional outburst, but they're actually experiencing stimuli like sounds, loud sounds in their environment as painful, right? For other people, it might just be annoying and like, ah, just turn it off, but it could actually be painful for them. That's how they're experiencing it. So we've got our over-responders, but we also have our under-responders as well, right? And so they aren't getting a lot of sensory input at all. And so, you know, my younger kids, I see them constantly crashing into things. They're crashing into beds or to walls or onto the floor, right? Um, and, and so we got to consider that. But even, you know, we might have our crashers and we might have our over-responders, but even one kiddo could experience both extremes. So it's not necessarily one or the other. We got to think about that too. With the over-responder kiddos, researchers are guessing that the autistic brain has trouble habituating to stimuli, which I talked about already, right? So they're not getting desensitized. And so that's why their emotional upset is always so much bigger than the situation calls for, right? So usually we would want to, what, expose them 
to the upsetting thing, right? Whether it's a dog or a snake, a fire alarm, whatever it is, so that they can teach their brain. It's okay. I've got this. Everything's fine. I've been in the situation before. I'm safe. The brain gets used to it. It habituates. It's not the case for our autistic kiddos, right? And so that's why we need to know what's going on. We absolutely have to treat these things differently for them. Their brain works differently, right? Their responses are therefore different. So why would we then expect to use the same strategies that are based on neurotypical brains, where they do habituate, where they do get used to these things? And so that goes to the whole movement of needing to make sure we're properly um, supporting these kiddos, diagnosing these kiddos, understanding what's going on for these kiddos. Okay. So I think that that's really important. Um, some really interesting um, research, you know, they're finding that in animals, when and animals might have sensory deficits as well, but when they, when animals have sensory deficits, um, they actually have changes in their amygdala as well. So they're way more susceptible to stress. And so they're, they're showing um, susceptibility to stress, but also way more social deficits as well. And so we know that's a core challenge for our autistic kiddos. So what's going on in that amygdala? You know, when that amygdala can't regulate and it can't habituate, we can't process facial cues. We can't respond to social stimuli. We can start seeing how hard it can be, right? To be able to function the way, you know, neurotypicals do. So like anxious people anywhere, they're going to misperceive the situation as being potentially threatening. That's what anxiety does, which creates that anxiety, right? And similarly, just like with our autistic kiddos, they're not recognizing safety cues, but there's some differences there just in that habituation. Now, a key thing, and I've been teaching this actually in one of my classes with my graduate students, and I love this kind of stuff. I totally geek out, but um, just looking at some of the brain hacks. So neurotypical brains, they have these hacks or shortcuts to help us figure out what's going on in the moment, right? So we can use, because if we had to think through every single situation and who is this and how do I respond and what do I wear and do I buy this thing or not? Do I pick up the, like, if we thought through everything, it would just be exhausting. So over time, our brain has developed these really quick um, hacks so we can use really quick information to help us choose to make decisions, make choices. So a really easy example is if we're deciding something to buy, like, let's say you got to go buy a new fridge, right? Our brain likes social proof. So you're most likely going to buy the one that's rated a five over a three stars, right? Five stars. I do it all the time on Amazon. Think about it. If you're going to go on Amazon, you're probably more likely to buy something that's a five star than a one star, right? And even if you go on Netflix and, 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 and this is the problem, you know, we've, the world understands the brain and it's just feeding into our brain. But another one is if you go on to Netflix or Apple TV or whatever it is that you watch, they always have trending now or the number one, the top 10 shows on Netflix, right? Our brain is drawn to that. It helps us make a quick decision. Oh, this is the top one. Everybody's watching. This must be good. I should watch it too, right? So that's just one simple example. We use lots of different information really fast. We're usually not even aware of it. And, and that's how they've created it, right? We're not even aware of it, but we're using them to help us figure things out. For our autistic kiddos though, their brains don't process information the same way. 
they don't have the same hacks and shortcuts. And so no wonder they're so exhausted and overwhelmed all the time. One big hack that their brain doesn't do is try to figure out what's happening now using information like prior experiences, like neurotypical what neurotypical kiddos would like, hmm, okay, so last weekend I did this and this is what happened. So therefore this weekend, it was good. I should do it again. They're not using those prior experiences. Again, we're not necessarily consciously aware of it. Our brain makes associations so quick. We might not even be aware of it. We just know, even my puppies know the minute they sit down, if I've got a little piece of pepperoni stick, they just know butts down and I get a pepperoni stick, right? They don't have the language to talk about it. They've just, their brain has made that association, right? And so they're using that prior experience. So most of us would know, right, even on a very subconscious level, oh, I've been in a similar situation before, so I can just do this. This is how I'm going to respond, right? Even if we're not cognitively thinking about it, our subconscious awareness just gets to do that, right? Because it's a quick hack. We have those hacks, but their brains can't do that. And so any new information, no matter how similar the situation is, even if it's the exact place and the exact person, it's a different day, right? So it's so overwhelming because they do have to process and try to make sense of everything. So those parts of the brain that help us, you know, give us that information um, and even just the, the, the parts of the brain that help us um, understand that it's a guess. I mean, our emotional brain, it's all a subjective guess, at what the problem is right now, at how risky this situation is, right? And being able to separate out what's real, what's rational, what's logical amount of risk, that's all disrupted. And so emotions and specifically anxiety, emergency, emergency, right? It becomes a rule. So all of this is worsened with another big difference that we see in our autistic kids. It's the differences in, in, in their emotional awareness. And so some of our kiddos have what's called alexithymia, right? And so that's part of the interoceptive awareness, being aware of emotions, understanding emotions, being able to label emotions, describe our emotions, express our emotions. That's really hard. With alexithymia, you don't have that capacity, right? So it's not just an autistic thing. We do see a lot of, of, of um, people with alexithymia who aren't autistic, right? But we do see it in our anxious and depressed kiddos too. But for our autistic kiddos, these differences in their emotional awareness, it could be related to sensory differences, right? And cause a lot of confusion about how to respond in certain situations, especially social situations. Um, and and if, if, if they're too complex, you know, they're too involved, um, or if there's any sort of emotional experience within that, it can be really hard. When we look at the skills that they need to have, you know, they, they have to have the ability to experience what's happening for them without judging it, without trying to push it away. Just self-awareness, recognize, oh, I'm feeling really stressed right now, right? Not trying to do anything with it. This is emotional acceptance. But when you don't have the emotional awareness in the first place, and I'm not saying like kids don't usually have that capacity, but they can develop the emotional awareness. They can feel like something is wrong and they can, they can be trained. They can learn that, but it's really hard for our autistic kiddos to develop that emotional awareness in the first place. And so your ability to accept what's going on is impaired because you can't interpret it in the first place. So you're just automatically going to get sucked into the vortex of fight and flight, emergency, emergency, right? 
And one thing that is really interesting, um, we see common sort of cognitive and emotional differences in autism that's related more to this lack of emotional awareness to this alexithymia rather than autism per se. Okay. So that's something. So I'm, I'm giving you all of this information. So when we get to interventions, hopefully it makes sense. <laughs> hopefully. Um, so for example, if I'm talking about it, paying less attention to faces, right? So focusing on people's mouth than their eyes. That has more to do about alexithymia than it does with autism. Okay. This might be a little mind boggling because people would say, assume like, oh no, it's just autistic. People don't look at the eyes. That has more to do with alexithymia than it does with autism. Okay. Alexithymia predicts whether or not we're going to respond empathetically, regardless if we have autism or not. It's alexithymia that helps us, well, <laughs> impairs our ability to be able to respond effectively, especially when emotions are involved. And so we hear so many parents say that their kids, their autistic child is empathetic. Well, yeah, it's not the autism that creates the lack of empathy. It's the alexithymia. Okay. So that's important. And so we do know that our, a lot of autistic people are very empathetic. Yes, they are. Right. That's not the problem. The autism isn't necessarily the problem. So I, you know, all of this to say, <laughs> there's always so much I could go on and on. There's just so many fascinating things. Um, we see the biggest relationship with anxiety is when we have someone who lacks that emotional awareness. That's essentially what I'm getting to. They can't accept and regulate their emotions. They're intolerant of uncertainty. So that brings me to another big link between the autism anxiety intolerance to uncertainty. And I've talked about it lots, right? That sameness. We know anyone experiencing anxiety. They're worried about the unknown. They're worried about the uncertainty and they believe that I can't cope with it. I can't handle it, right? And they can't cope with the feelings of discomfort that comes with uncertainty, right? That's the problem with anxiety. So it's it's an intolerance. And we also see this intolerance in depression as well. But um, we, we tend to see way more severe intolerance to uncertainty in our autistic kiddos. And this intolerance is a major mediator in the relationship between sensory functioning and the repetitive restrictive behaviors that we see in our autistic kiddos. So essentially, an intolerance of uncertainty, that greatly predicts their sensory sensitivity. And that's true for our autistic kiddos and our neurotypical kiddos, right? But, but the predictive power is way stronger in our autistic kiddos. So we're going to see way more rigidity, way more insistence on sameness in our autism population. And so that does become one of the core, it is one of the core symptoms, but we do see it in anxiety, right? So we, we see this link of intolerance, anxiety, and autism. We do see it in anxiety, but it's just a little bit more severe and not autistic. Now, what are some of these intolerances? Well, it could be anything. It could be, you know, I just think of Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, right? That is my chair, right? I have to sit there. I cannot sit anybody anywhere else. You do not sit there, right? So maybe there's an intolerance. I cannot sit anywhere else at dinner, right? Um the discomfort of, I have no idea who's going to be the substitute today. I have no idea if we go on an outing, who's going to be in my group, who's going to be in charge of my group, right? Um, but even a discomfort with things I do know, right? I know that I have to use a pen now instead of a pencil, but I'm really scared I'm going to make a mistake and I'm not going to be able to erase it. And I bring that up because that just actually came up 
not too long ago with one of my autistic kiddos. Um, I was just doing an assessment with a little girl and, and a huge anxiety for her was when I said she had to use pen and not a pencil, right? So I don't know what's going to happen when I'm using this pen, if I'm going to make a, a mistake. So those are all of the autism-related anxieties. We still need lots of research. We're still learning all of this, you know, but we can start to see a sort of model from which we can start to understand some of the emotional dysregulation that we see in autism, the differences in sensory processing, the alexithymia, the rigidity, all of that sort of creates this complete intolerance of uncertainty. And that's contributing both to anxiety and the restricted repetitive thoughts and behaviors that we see in autism. Um, and we actually do see a lot of ritualistic behaviors like we do see in OCD. Um, so counting and checking, repeating, tapping, right? Um, and a lot of the rigidities in our anxious autistic kiddos. Sometimes these behaviors are functional, meaning they are doing them to try to reduce the anxiety or to, to, to try to have some control over their environment. Um, and that's more in line with the true compulsions that we see in OCD. It's a coping mechanism to make them feel better when they're feeling anxious. But there are others that aren't functional and they're not related to distress. So those are the stimming repetitive behaviors that we see in autism that I had mentioned before, right? So we do see a lot of obsessions and routines and rituals. Um, those are more pronounced in our OCD kiddos than our autistic kiddos. So that's something to consider, especially when we're doing assessment too. Again, I mean, I, I just mentioned it. Maybe I should have mentioned it. I go into more depth in my, my assessment training if, if you do want to be part of that. Um, our autistic kiddos don't seem to have the same sort of obsessive prerequisites that our OCD kiddos do. So that can look different too as well. Um, and when we look at diagnosing, you know, we have to question the validity of a lot of the tools that we're using for our autistic population because they are experiencing unique aspects of anxiety that aren't accounted for in our typical tools that we use, the scared and the mask and whatever else we're using. And we have to think about the treatment differences too. And I'm going to go into that next week. So, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of groups, right? So I talked about one group that up to half of our autistic population have autism-related anxiety, but the other group, they do experience more of the traditional common anxieties. They're the shared anxiety characteristics that we see in our general population. So that, that group really would be more of the independent sort of comorbid um, diagnoses that we see of with anxiety that aren't related to autism. So we can't use anxiety and how it shows up as a differential diagnosis. So I'm just saying there's two halves, right? So half of our group, it really is autism related. The other half, it's just anxiety, right? And it, it could be different processing, like the negative biases, of course, right? We're, we're more likely to pick up on potentially threatening cues. We're only attending to all of those contextual cues that are going to inform or confirm our, our belief that something dangerous is happening. And we're going to miss all the other contextual cues that are out there that would otherwise tell us that we're actually safe, right? Um, the automatic sort of unhelpful thoughts that come up, that something bad is going to happen for sure today, something bad is going to happen. Of course, the physiological arousal that comes up with fight flight. So we, we do see, you know, um, up to 50% of our kiddos, but some are saying a small percentage would fit this for too, right? So if we just have such wide variability um, that's really distinct from the core differences of autism, but you know, there are some commonalities among our autistic warriors than for neurotypicals. Um, a lot of them are related to social situations, um, weather, 
environmental disasters, animals, right? Um, we actually see a lot more in the autistic population. So it looks like a normal worry, but we just see the frequency of those types of things happen a lot more in our autistic uh, population. So, you know, a little bit of deviation, even in the common typical sort of anxieties, but the course of anxiety, it follows the same sort of pathway for our autistics than for our neurotypicals. Um, and then of course, you know, we get to the third group, I guess I didn't really talk about, but that's a mix of both the traditional anxiety and the autism specific anxiety. Um, I might leave it there today. I did have a little bit more that I wanted to go into for today, but I think that that's so much to process. So I will pick up again next week. I'm going to be talking about some of the maintaining factors. This might actually end up being a three-part series. So there's just so much that I want to share. Um, but the takeaway from today is that we see, I guess, these three groups, right? One, the common sort of anxieties, even though the frequency of the types, the content of worries might be a little bit different, um, a little bit more prevalent in our autistic population, or the anxieties that really are related specifically to anxiety or associated challenges, right? Because sometimes it's common amongst our autistic population, but maybe related more to the alexithymia piece, right? But we do see, you know, some, some differences. And then the third is the combination of the two. Really important to understand. A, it's going to help us with differential diagnosis of knowing what's what, and is it anxiety? Is it autism, right? Because they can mask each other. But then even more importantly, if we're taking that transdiagnostic approach, I don't even necessarily care about the label. It's about how do we support them? And that's going to be a big piece that I'm going to talk about in the coming weeks. So thank you for joining me today. Let me know if you have questions, because I know that this was a little bit more complex and a little bit heavier in content. I'm happy to re-explain things or explain things in a little bit more depth. Go enjoy the rest of your day. Go help those kiddos be bold and courageous and build their resilience. And I will see you next week.